good to be with you. Good morning. Turn with me your Bibles to Joshua chapter 22. We found in the Bibles we've provided on page 196. <clears throat> I'm grateful to Pastor Kyle for uh, his teaching through Joshua. This is the first book I ever studied uh, some 35 years ago. And I've been blessed by his um, uh, labor on our behalf through this book that I consider myself very familiar with. But um, he is, um, he, it's been a great encouragement to me. Um, I'm preaching this week, Pastor Tim's preaching next week, and then I'll preach again the week after. Uh, toward the end of, of uh, these sermon series, um, our desire as elders is to give Pastor Kyle some time to prepare for the next um, uh, series, either by preaching the last few sermons of this series or providing a few uh, one-off sermons or short series uh, in between to give Pastor Kyle some time so uh, that he may continue to serve us. So just kind of to give you some idea of kind of the ebb and flow of how uh, the preaching calendar works. Um, so I'd like, to, I'd like us to begin in Joshua 22, verse 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 9, and then we'll uh, talk about it. This is God's word. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice in all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but you have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their tents. Now to the one half tribe of, the, of Manasseh, Moses had given possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and which much, with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. This is God's word. Our first point here, you know, the title of the sermon is our, uh, Fight for Faith. And our first point here is a simple one, but it bears um, repeating for us in our fight for faith. And the first point is the faithful are rewarded. The faithful are rewarded. 
If we look back at Joshua 1, um, even just, I think it's worth, I mean, we've, it's amazing how similar the language is with what we saw in, in Numbers 32 and we see in 22, uh, Joshua 22. But look at Joshua 1.10. And Joshua commanded the, off, uh, excuse me, 12. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And they also take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it. The land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, all that you have commanded us we will do. And wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you commanded him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. And so looking back at that, the Transjordan tribes or the Eastern tribes or the Reubenites, the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, I'll refer to all three of those uh, in our time together. They were charged with fighting for their brothers. And they would not find rest. They would not enter into their possession until they had done all that was required for their brothers. And we see that their mission was accomplished here. They did all that was required. Joshua has found them faithful and he sends them away with a blessing and with much reward. We see that blessing referred to in verses 6 and 7. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away. And then in 7, up at the top of the next column, and when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he blessed them. And then in verse 8, he sends them back with much wealth, with very much livestock, with silver, with gold, with bronze and iron, in which, with much clothing, more than enough for all their families back across the Jordan. Their faithfulness was rewarded. Brothers and sisters, this is a faint picture for us as believers when we finish our race consider the eastern tribes how they serve the lord we just read in 114 and 15 how they crossed over the jordan and went armed ahead of their brothers they were leading the charge they were exposed to the danger for how long until the lord gave their brothers rest and they took possession of the land that the Lord had given them. And why did they do it? For the hope of a future promise of rest and land and blessing. And here in chapter 22, they have kept all that the Lord and Moses and Joshua had commanded, and they receive their reward. There was no thinking, well, yeah, but I mean... We need a little something here to keep us going. What about us? 
No, they were looking forward to a city. They were looking forward to a reunion on the other side of the Jordan after the work was done. We would do well to take a lesson from the Reubenites and the Gadites in the half-tribe of Manasseh in this regard. Because of the future reward that, is in promise, that has been promised us on the other side of death, we can expend ourselves on behalf of our brothers and sisters. We can make much of them. We can help them and we can serve them at extreme cost and burden to ourselves. These people didn't have intimate personal relationships with those other nine and a half tribes. I'm sure they knew some of them, but these were hundreds of thousands of people. They didn't do it because they'd known them all their lives. No, they did it because they were co-heirs. And they gave of themselves and risked their lives so that anonymous, faceless brothers may get what was promised. And in time, they were certain that they too would receive the promised reward. Except when our time comes, we won't be summoned before Joshua. No, we will stand before the Lord himself. And we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Were the promises kept to the two and a half tribes? Yes, they were. Were they, made real, were they given real promises? Yes, they were. How much more will the promises made by the Lord to you and to me be kept on that final day? But Joshua doesn't just send them away with a blessing and a reward. No, he also sends them away with a command. We see that command in verse 5. Only be very careful to observe the commandment in the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. To love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. In verse 5, we see that faithfulness isn't a one-time thing. It's not like Joshua goes, okay, you've proved yourself. All right, you're, you're good. You're faithful. Now get out of here, you crazy kids. There's no ongoing command. He doesn't say that. No, he says, be careful from this day forward to observe the commandment and the law. Now, we don't have a record of this happening and we can't get into their heads, but when they receive this command from Joshua, there should be some thought on their part. Okay, how are we going to do this going forward? We've kept his commands thus far, but now that things are changing, how may we best accomplish what God has commanded us to do as we leave this place? Some of you here in the church who are considering baptism, this applies to you. This isn't like you get your baptism badge for your Boy Scout sash. You do the things required of you and then you receive what was promised and then check, mission accomplished. No, baptism is an ordinance that commends and, and affirms that you are faithful and that you are entering into a life of faithfulness. 
You are linking arms with us. You are entering into this family of faith, which helps you in your fight for faith. And it is also a command to remain faithful. Our church covenant that you sign says that when you leave this place, you will as soon as possible unite with another church where you can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's word. So a big part of being faithful is an intent and a plan to be faithful in the future. This doesn't just happen. It is a fight for faith. It is identifying and anticipating challenges and, and possible pitfalls. It is a fight of faith that is taking honest and frank assessments of your life, knowing how you were formed, knowing where you are weak and where you are vulnerable to sin and to deception, and having real talks with loved ones about how to stand against it and how to how to how to strengthen, how to be strengthened in your weaknesses. And we are called to, uh, so, uh, uh, we are called to be intentional in our relationships with other believers in the church. We need brothers and sisters to walk alongside of us with this. We need brothers who are committed to our spiritual well, spiritual well-being, who will walk in, in with us in faithful obedience to the Lord. Faithfulness is rewarded, but faithfulness is also a corporate pursuit, which leads to our second, pie, uh, our second point. Faithfulness is a corporate pursuit. Let's read beginning in chapter 10. And then way, the, the two and a half, when they, the two and a half tribes, came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. And the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of the family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor? from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. 
But now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebels by building you for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan the son of Zerah break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon the congregation of all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Faithfulness is a corporate pursuit. Joshua is a good storyteller here. He tells the story from the nine and a half tribes. And so we aren't given any of the background or reasoning yet for what the two and a half tribes, why the two and a half tribes did what we did. All that we know at this point is that as soon as the eastern tribes leave, their last act on this side of the Jordan is to build an altar of imposing size. This shocks the people of Israel. They did not expect to hear news like this given these tribes' faithfulness for so long. But notice what happens. Israel doesn't wash their hands of the two and a half tribes. They don't say, you know what, good riddance, they're out of here. I'm glad they're not going to bring us down with them. They were never a part of us anyway. Out of sight, out of mind, you're dead to us. No, they don't do that. In verse 12, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gather at Shiloh to make war against them. They're going to oppose them. But before they oppose them with force, they send a delegation of people to confront the eastern tribes. They're led by Phinehas, who is the son of Eleazar, the only uh, surviving son um, um, of uh, Aaron. Who was je- and uh, Phineas was jealous for the Lord in the sin of Peor that we'll think about a little bit more in a minute. And Phineas is, has shown himself faithful, a very faithful man for a long period of time. But I think it's instructive for us to, to, um, to see why and how this delegation confronts their brothers. Look at verse 16. They appeal to them on behalf of the whole congregation of the Lord. They are there on official business. The Lord, they're there on the Lord's business. They're not there on their own business. And they don't take personal offense. They're like, this is the thanks you give us. No, they point them to the fact that this altar is an offense to God himself. Look at verse 16. Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? And then in verse 17 and 18, they call them away from sin by appealing to the lasting effects of sin, by pointing them to what, reminding them of what happened at Peor. I just mentioned this a few seconds ago, but just to refresh our memory on what happened at Peor, this comes from Numbers 25, when uh, Israel lived in in Shittim, and the people of Israel began to worship Baal at Peor, where they whored after the daughters of Moab, and they ate their foods, and they bowed down to their idols and temple worship. And the Lord was furious with Israel. And he, he, he put a plague on them. 
And as Moses is confronting the congregation of their sin, this Israelite named Zimri comes into the camp with a Midianite prostitute and he's taking, to him, taking her into his tent in front of the whole congregation. And just the brashness of the whole thing is just amazing. And so Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, takes a spear and runs it through Zimri and the prostitute and uh, drives it, uh, runs it through into the ground and kills them both at the time. And the Lord says that the plague on Israel was immediately stopped at that point in time. The, Lord, the, the plague that the Lord had put on Israel because of their sin. And this plague, though it was stopped, had killed 24,000 people. But it's interesting here that Phineas, the same Phineas that brought an end to the plague, and the leaders of Israel tell these two and a half tribes that they're still dealing with the sin at Peor. They're dealing with the sin, of, uh, with the sin at Peor, even though Numbers 25 tells us that God's wrath was turned away from them because of Phineas's zeal. And he says their sin is atoned for. And God also in Numbers 25 says that he has given them a covenant of peace. He has given all of this to them, a covenant of peace, their sins atoned for. And the plague has stopped, which suggests that, the, that the, the effects of that sin should be over and done with, right? Wrong. Phineas says we're still dealing with the effects of this to this day. Look at the phrase he uses in verse 19. Have we, uh, 17. Have we not had enough of the sin of pay, at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves? The lasting effects of sin, even if the judgment is no longer there, is still present. They were constantly dealing with idolatry all their time as a nation because of the sin at Peor. Phineas says, we're still dealing with it to this day. We understand this, don't we? Even if we've been forgiven, even if the sin has been cast as far as east is from west, we still deal with the effects of past sin. It's like that pants hanger in your closet with the cardboard stick in between it. You know, the minute that that cardboard stick bends, you know, I mean, it's like the hanger is useless. We were like, throw it away. You know, we can't throw it away. Why not? Because we've got just as many hangers as we do pants. And so we've got to put this into service, right? But the minute anything, any pressure, any weight goes on that hanger, it immediately returns to the, to the weakness. It goes to the bend. And so it constantly, the burden constantly falls on that previous kink, that previous weakness. And that weakness is going to be revealed over and over again. It's frustrating. It's the same with our sin. When we get into pressure situations, we're prone to fall back into old ways, just as a dog returns to its vomit. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? I'm very familiar with Paul's prayer. The lasting effects of sin are there. And the Lord Jesus in, 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 um, 
in Hebrews 10 tells us he cleanses us from a guilty conscience. He does provide us restoration. He provides us strength, which is made perfect in weakness. But we all also have to be aware and we have to be mindful of those weaknesses that pass sin that remain in our lives. And we've got to fortify against those. We've got to guard against it. And so Phineas right here is saying, be done with sin as quickly as possible so you don't have to deal with those lasting effects the way that we're still dealing with it at Peor. It is a gift of God to be able to relate to Phineas's words. Have we not had enough of this sin already? It sickens us and we want to flee from it. Jesus Christ is our refuge where we can flee from sin we will find rest from our sin on that final day and we will not by God's grace have to endure the punishment because Christ endured the punishment of your past sin for you you don't have to continue to wrestle with the guilt of of it because Christ is taken away from you through his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And when he was raised from the dead, he was raised for your justification. I'm not saying that sin continues and you can have to continue to atone for it, but we must be mindful of the lasting residual effects of sin in our life and fight it. The elders of Israel in verse 18 also explain that there is a collective guilt for sin. If one person or a group is in sin, that has an effect on the whole bunch. He says in 18, if you rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. Not just you. He says again in 19 that if they rebel against the Lord by building an altar other than the altar of God and the people of Israel don't put a stop to it, the Lord would see them as rebels as well. So they have a concern for their guilt before their Lord, but they also are concerned for their brothers. They have a genuine concern for their Eastern brothers. They really care about this. And they're willing to suffer in their own lives for the sake of these eastern tribes. Look at verse 19. If the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where, um, uh, where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourself a possession among us. Forget that. Um, um, be willing to leave it all behind and come live with us. Live with us and we'll give you possession among us and so that we can all be together and we won't have to be struggling with this sin apart from one another ever again. Sure, they would be leaving behind some great possessions, but they'd be among the people of God. They'd be all be together in community. He says, if the land is bad, no matter how plentiful it is, don't stay there. After all, you remember Achan broke faith over the stuff, over stuff. And wrath came on him. Wrath came on the whole congregation as Pastor Larry was praying. So these same very things that have caused these two and a half tribes to live across the Jordan. He's saying, leave it behind. Don't you see how Achan fell and it brought guilt on the whole congregation? Leave it behind and come live with us. Faithfulness is a corporate pursuit. 
We entreat others to the narrow path. We beg and we plead with them. We understand that we are in some way held responsible for our brothers and sisters. We feel an obligation to them. If we just turn our back and think, oh well, not my problem, we will be held accountable by the Lord. I would point us to our church covenant once again. We will walk together in brotherly love as becomes a member of a, the member of a Christian church, exercising an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonishing and entreating one another as occasion may require. And then a couple of paragraphs later, we will seek by divine aid to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust and remembering that as we have been voluntarily buried by baptism and raised again from the symbolic grave, so there is on us a special obligation now to lead a new and holy life. Now, do you notice that? We covenant with one another to live carefully in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust. Faith is a personal thing, right? It's true, it is. However, we commit to one another to live a life of faith. I'm committing to you my obligation to lead a new and holy life. So if we do not hold one another accountable, we are not living up to the principles of this covenant. And so when I sign or I recite that covenant, I am giving you permission and I am putting you under obligation to speak to me about my sin. Because faithfulness is a corporate pursuit. One in which we commit to others our intention to live a faithful life and one in which we accept our role in helping our brothers and sisters live that faithful life. Which leads to our last point. Let's read verses 21 through 29. <clears throat> then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said an answer to the heads of the families of Israel. The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord. He knows and let Israel itself know if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, uh, between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, Let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering nor for sacrifice but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, 
we should say, Behold the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. So this last point is faithfulness requires constant examination. Faithfulness requires constant examination and a long-term view. Faithfulness requires constant examination and a long-term view. It's only at this point in the story that we learn the true reasons behind the actions that these two and a half tribes take. But notice the two and a half tribes don't say, what business is this of yours? They willfully and they joyfully welcome the accountability that the nine and a half tribes offer them. Look at verse 22 and 23. The mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know it was if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord. Do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. In effect, they're saying, if this were true, we would be standing right alongside you going to war against us. Even if it were us, we would be opposed to us. So why did they build it? Well, we learn in 24 through 29 that the eastern tribes built this altar as a witness to the people of the western tribes. They realize that there may be a time in the future west of the Jordan that those people think, uh, that those people east of the Jordan think that they don't have any portion in the Lord anymore, out of sight, out of mind, because of the boundary of the Jordan and, and uh, that they would prevent future generations from worshiping at the altar of Shiloh. And so as they're going home to their families, they think, hmm, this may be a problem. And so the final act as they cross over the Jordan is they build this copy of the altar as a witness and testimony to the Lord. Not for burnt offerings. They say this five times. Not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifices, not for peace offerings. No, this is a memorial. This is just a memorial. There's a concern that these future generations of the Western tribes may not consider these Eastern tribes part of Israel any longer. There's a concern that's voiced in verse 25 that they may think, okay, the Lord has set the Jordan as a boundary between us and you. And I think we can see the seeds of this already taking place as we read down in verse 19 where the Western delegation says, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into what? Into the Lord's land. Come to the Lord's land where the tabernacle stands. Now, granted, the circumstances were somewhat odd for how these two and a half tribes ended up with this land. 
But the reality is, is that the Lord gave these eastern tribes these Transjordan lands. They, he gave it to them. There were three cities of refuge on the eastern side. There are six total cities of refuge in all Israel, three on the western side, three on the eastern side. And so in this, in this entreaty, uh, uh, this entreating uh, the western tribes of the eastern tribes, the situation, the tables are somewhat flipped. And so the western tribes' confrontation is now somehow called into question the western tribes' future attitude and posture toward the eastern tribes. Like saying, will, you, will your people continue to look at us as part of Israel? So let's read verses 30 through 34. When Phinehas, the priest, and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst, because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. And then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priests and the chiefs, returned to the people of Reuben, and the people of, from the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and then in the land of Gilead, to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness, for they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. So the western tribes realize that the eastern tribes haven't broken faith and instead have built this altar as a monument to the Lord and a reminder to the western tribes not to forget their brothers across the Jordan. I think this is a good reminder for us as we seek to hold others accountable and to have tough conversations with them. First of all, this lesson of this chapter is not that the western tribes should have just assumed the best and not talked to them. We shouldn't walk away from this chapter thinking, see, this was all a misunderstanding and we should have just, we should have just assumed there's probably a good reason for what they did and just leave them alone. No, the news they heard was indeed alarming and it needed to be investigated. I think it's notable in verse 12 that we see um, uh, the people of Israel gather at Shiloh to make war against them. Yet in verse 13, Israel sends a delegation. I don't want to make too much of this, but we should have conversations with others in which we seek to understand before we attack. We should assume the best of our brothers and sisters, even in entreating them in what we think is obvious sin. And as we enter into these conversations, we should be ready and open to having our own sin and our own presuppositions and our own attitudes exposed. Even today, as we have a members meeting, 
we should take seriously the issues we consider and we should definitely act on those. But it also provides us an opportunity to examine our own lives lest we fall into sin and compromise as well. Faithfulness requires constant examination in a long-term view. This chapter is not a neat and tidy chapter. I must admit, like I said in the beginning, I've been fascinated with this specific chapter for over 30 years, and I've learned a lot, and frankly, I've had my opinions changed quite a bit in the last week or two as I've read this. And the reason I mentioned that faithfulness requires a, a long-term view is that there are ample hints here of problems. As we've discussed, faithfulness is a corporate exercise, and if Israel wants to remain faithful for future generations, there is real work in tenacity that is going to be required to hold this fragile nation together. There is a real out-of-sight, out-of-mind threat here as the Western tribes go uh, consider their Eastern brothers. They have no need to go there. For the Western tribes, what lies beyond the Jordan is the old way of life. And they've turned from it. They understand this is what God has promised for us. This is what we have longed for. And we cannot even fathom why they would want to do that. It doesn't make sense to them. And for the eastern tribes, they asked for this land. Because they felt like it was better, more conducive for their livestock and for their possessions. This has a hint of Lot leaving Abram, Abraham and, and pursuing his own land that was good for livestock that he saw with his eyes and considered it, this is good for, for my possessions. And he left behind the people of, um, uh, the people of his, his uncle, the people of God and Abraham. It is true what they warned about Achan. Their possessions may have led them away from fellowship with the people of God, and they must be on guard against that. And God's hand did give Israel its promised land on the other side of the Jordan. Yes, he acquiesced and gave them land on the other side, but this doesn't appear to be the original design. And the place of worship is across the Jordan in Shiloh. It is a distance for these eastern tribes that they must cross a national, natural boundary, the Jordan, which we know from previous chapters has a tendency to be in flood stage at different times of year, which makes crossing very difficult um, uh, apart from God's work. And these eastern tribes built an altar because they perceived this may be a problem for us going forward. This distance is going to create some issues for us. Perhaps they should have stopped and thought, okay, is this really profitable for us? Is this really a good idea for us to go over there? Yes, it would take some work now to undo everything that's been done. But maybe we ought to consider this a little more 
rather than just building a monument. It should be a reminder to the Western tribes that there are people far away from Shiloh, even on the Western side. And how will they care for those people who are far off from the tabernacle? How will they remain mindful of them and support them? These are real issues that need consideration if Israel is to remain faithful for the long haul. These are issues that we have to consider as well. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we can do. There's a lot of things that we're free to do, but that doesn't mean that it's necessary good things for us to do. I'm aware of a couple of cases uh, in this church where people have, have thought about buying cars and have said, hey, would you check me on this? I don't know if this is a good thing or a bad thing, and I need, to, I need examination. I need to be faithful in this. I need help. Is this going to be a problem? Is this going to, to lead me astray? Is this going to lead other people astray? We must consider our own lives and the lives of our brothers and sisters. Yes, our goal is to live faithfully today, but we desire to live a fruitful life for our families and our congregation for decades to come, as Pastor Kyle prayed. This is not just the elder's job. This is your job. To consider as well. There is a reward for faithfulness. We shouldn't expect to receive it here. We should take a, a lesson from the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half tribe of Manasseh. And we should willingly and joyfully expend our lives for the sake of our brothers, confident that we will be rewarded on that final day. And we will joyfully think on that day that it was worth it. And the only regret we may have is that we didn't live even more faithful lives seeing the reward that we get for our frail lives here. Faithfulness is a corporate exercise. We covenant with each other to live watchful lives for our own sake as well as one another. We cannot live faithful lives in isolation. What efforts are you making to engage with others in this body to do spiritual good to them and to humbly and vulnerably open yourself up to watchful care from others? We can't just seek to obey the letter of the law. We must look beyond what is allowed and consider what is good and what is best for the long-term health of ourselves, of our families, and our church. Again, while everything may be lawful, not everything is beneficial. Live faithfully today with the long-term in view. This is what faithfulness looks like. May we join arm in arm and pursue it together. Let's pray. Father, we have just been reminded of the frailty of human faith.
feels like there's ditches and hazards on every side. But Father, we thank you for the means of grace that you have provided, your word, your spirit, your body, the cleansing of our conscience, Lord, that strengthens us for the walk of faith that you have laid before us. But ultimately, Father, we delight in the fact that the comfort and security of the baby is not found in its ability to hold on to its mother. Its security is found in the mother holding on to the child. We thank you, Father, that not one has ever been snatched from your grip. And Father, in light of that, we desire to hold on to you all the more tightly, Lord, and live faithfully knowing that we will one day be rewarded when we see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.